Uh, what's your dog's name? Cody. Be still, Cody. Today's episode, The Life Aquatic, with Steve Zizou. Hey, welcome back to the Blood and Black Rum Podcast. I am uh, your host, Ryan Barber, and I am joined by my best friend and co-host, Christopher Martin. How's it going? Otherwise known as just plain old Martin. Yeah. Um, and today, we are foraying back into our Jeff Goldblum month. That we are. Jeff Goldblum. We're taking a look at Goldblum on a smaller scale. Goldblum in a supporting role. Supporting role, yes. Uh, last last time um, for our July 4th festivities, we decided to, you know, jump back into nostalgia mode with Independence Day, which really didn't fare too well. No, it did not. No, no, it did not. And for those of you that have listened to that previous podcast, you know that... Uh, we had some good things to say about Jeff Goldblum. He's always good. He's always good. In that film, not so much of uh, his normal, like, outlandish role. Uh, very low on the Goldblumian factor. Uh, the scientific method that we came up with to designate the types of characters that he plays in the films. But uh, And I, I actually, I, I was talking, because I have my, I, my YouTube channel that I do for the Moon is Dead World on that as well. And I was doing a plug for Blood and Black Rum podcast on there. And um, I was talking about the Goldblumian factor, and I, I talked about how scientific it was. But it's so scientific that I just can't explain it in regular standard words. It's, like, it's, vocabulary it's, just doesn't cut it. It's, it's like, there's paperwork that, and, you know, calculus and stuff that goes into a, this. A gut feeling. And a gut feeling, yeah. The gut feeling is really a big part of it, and it... You know, it's just hard to, to write out, to, to speak, without, you know, going into minute details that we just can't get into. So, trust us when we say the Goldblumian factor is a definitive way of judging Jeff think, Goldblum's body I think, of work. I think everybody can, can attest to that and to agree to that. They just, um, you know, they when they see, like, wow, like a certain film, yeah. that you're like, oh, he's being very Goldblumian in this film, or like... They watch another film like hey, he's he's he's, rear, not, he's he's rearing it back he's rearing the gold bloom back and yeah I I agree I mean I'm sure when everybody was watching the Super Bowl this year and they saw him in that glorious apartments dot com uh, <laughs> commercial and they're like oh he's ratcheted the gold bloom factor up to like five I think that was like a, a layover from his work on Portlandia <laughs> you know they they were just like. You did a really great job as a really ridiculous character on Portlandia, like with this pull-out king shtick and all that other stuff. And they're like, you know, can you just port that over to this commercial? I I just love the reg the regular apartments.com commercial. He's like, yeah, hi. He's got like this fancy glasses, and he can see like your world of apartments, and check them out. You can find people in apartments. Go there. Yeah, apartments.com. I mean, how much do you think that is real, Jeff Goldblum? I mean, is that real Jeff Goldblum, or is that his his acting persona that he's got well, Okay, I got two two takes. Is, is somebody hired him? Like, just you do what you do. 
Kind of like if somebody hired Bill Shatner. I'm sure when Shatner got hired for like Priceline, they're like, Bill, you just do what you do. Yeah. And we'll fucking film it and put it in the can and... Yeah. That's it. So I, I think... It's, you, you do what you do. So I'm thinking that's what they probably... They did for the Apartments.com commercials is uh, they told him, just, you do what you do. Yeah. Or, which the less, less likely version is somebody wrote that for him. He's like, okay, we're going to take your normal quirks and kind of perk them up. But he's like, uh, okay, whatever. Yeah. I, I think more he's just improving. He's We could totally just do a Apartments.com commercial podcast episode. Just spend yeah. all all night on that. Yeah. But instead of doing that, we're actually... We listed the other uh, films that we're going to be covering for the Jeff Goldblum we, uh, month last time in the podcast. And we talked about The Fly, which is a film, you know, for a primarily horror podcast show that we have to cover. I mean, The Fly is one that we have to get into. We're supposed to be a horror podcast. We are at times a horror podcast, <laughs> but not always. We have kind of ventured from the original thesis statement. That's right. You know, we've kind of, we kind of <laughs> ventured more into, like, films that we can put up with that we, like, have to tolerate through a lot of them. You know, like, how long can they get through? Can they waste on this film? Or, or you know, like, we we had a whole segment where we did that. I mean, we had a we should have done that type of month, like... Films that we just barely tolerated, like <laughs> Leprechaun and the My Bloody Valentine remake. Um, those films I've almost, were. I've almost blacked that out from my like mind. Yeah, I mean, those were the film, like right in that whole area were the films that we were just like. It make, it God, make, do we have to sit through this? It makes me. Lo- <laughs> it makes me looking back, like when I first saw Silent Night, Deadly Night, like, it's okay. Like now, it's like, wow, what a gem! <laughs> what a genius film! That I, was. you know, I still sit here and sing in my head, especially at when I'm at work. Like I'm looking for. You know, if that had been done as like a skit or something like that, it would have been perfect. You know, it's just to Silent Night, Deadly Night's detriment that it was. Legitimately, a, like supposed to be a war- yeah, heartwarming yeah. scene, yeah. But uh, you know, didn't really play out that still way. Hilarious. It's it is, still hilarious. It is hilarious. I knew you'd love that when I saw it. The, <laughs> like it's probably like five or six years ago. I think I watched it in college for the first time. Was when I saw it, and I was like, "Oh my god, you're gonna like? Why is there not more talk about this montage? Because it's great. It's great." So I knew you'd love it, but but yeah. So we had we had covered a lot of films that were like. We have to put up with these. But now we're kind of getting into films that we actually enjoy. Like we talked about, we're, we're going to be covering The Fly with, mm-hmm. with Jeff Goldblum. That's a film that I, I really like. It's a very good film. It's very fi- I mean, I remember... It's, it's a remake done right. Yeah. I mean, it's a it's a good film. I actually want... I was going to do a little anecdote, but I'm not going to share that because I'll wait till we actually do the film itself. But um, And then we also decided that we were going to cover um, The Lost World, which... While it may be kind of a cheesier film, I still enjoy it. I still like The Lost World. What about you? I don't know. I don't know how you feel about it. Um, I, mean, I, know I, you... I have more distinct memories of that film than I do Jurassic Park. I remember seeing The Lost World in theaters. I didn't see it in theaters, but I got it for Christmas one year when I was like eight years old when it first came out on VHS. I remember getting the VHS and it had a holographic like front cover. And I just remember watching the hell out of it like, yeah. like a bunch of times. And so and we'll get into that more on that episode's podcast, but I don't want to blow all of oh, our yeah, secrets at the at once in in one podcast, but um, and then we we came up with cats and dogs, which I, <laughs> I don't actually I don't think I've ever seen it. 
I have. I threw it out there at, at literally as a joke. I'm like, yeah, let's do cats and dogs. Because I just... And then ran, I random said, film, I said, random film from my, uh, my childhood that I remember seeing in theaters. And uh, you're like, yeah, let's do it. I was, I was like, no, I'm just, I'm just kidding. But you're like, yeah, let's, yeah. Let's do I mean, it. I never saw Cats and Dogs. Saw that darn cat. I saw that darn cat, too. A lot of swears in that one. I know. That, <laughs> that was surprising that, to me at the time. That damn cat. <laughs> damn cat. Uh, so, yeah, I never saw Cats and Dogs, but I did see that darn cat. Um, and then... The last one that we knew that we wanted to do was The Life Aquatic with Steve Zissou. And it's a Wes Anderson film, um, which we've covered before on the podcast. Um, so most listeners know that we do like Wes Anderson films. I mean, it, it that could have gone either way because a lot of people are not fans of Wes Anderson films. And, and some people are huge fans of Wes Anderson. So it's kind of a... he's He kind of has like a love it or hate it relationship with his you know with viewers well, I could definitely agree to that, that I, don't, I, I, don't, I don't I don't it's he for me I love Wes Anderson I've loved him for since Life Aquatic was probably the first Wes Anderson film I saw uh, way back when it came out in 2004 right um, but I could definitely see like how his style if you're would not be off-putting would be yeah off-putting if you're not into like uh, film as like an art itself, or, or dryness, or the very dry, subtle, sarcastic humor, yeah. the v- very vintage throwback, like to the music and the look and the sound, and washed out, film. the yeah. you know, pastelly colors, the French, you know, neo noir mm-hmm. style of like filming and characters. Yeah, um, I could definitely see how it'd be off putting to people. Um, but I, I personally love it. I love like the dry humor. Mm-hmm. Um, always has a great ensemble cast. Um, so yeah, I'm, I mean, I, lo- I like I've said before, the Grand Budapest Hotel. I love Wes Anderson films. I think he does a very good job, and I think he, he, the way he approaches everything is very meticulous. Yeah, and and he's one of the few auteurs still kind of parading around, like you know, you know yeah. <laughs> You don't see a lot of, you know, producer, writers, directors in Hollywood these days. I mean, granted, he's not getting, you know, a $100 million budget to do his films, but... No. He, you know, he's doing it, and he's doing what he wants to in the style that he wants to, and it, you know, it works. And granted, he doesn't really need, you know, that that many... I mean, well, even then, though, he did have a $50 million budget for The Life Aquatic, so that is surprisingly large for... The type of film that it is, really, and the I could see where you could see though you could see in the film where the budget where the budget went to. But I'm saying like for him to actually get that funding for it is kind of surprising based on the appeal that this film would have to like a general. Well, you got you got to remember it came right at like a couple three years after the Royal Tenenbaums, and that was a surprise hit. That That did that did have a yeah. You know, I mean that I as as I recall was nominated for a few. Academy Awards and Oscars for, uh, you know, not like Best Picture, but it, it did reasonably well. So I think you know a studio would probably be like, yeah, let's give him, you know, yeah, see, you know, see what he can do. I mean, because he consistently gets very well respected actors and actresses in his films. Right, Bill yeah. Murray's a staple; he's a star, the star in this film. You know, the lead, the lead as Steve Zissou. Yeah, um, you know, with 
He always gets the Wilson brothers, either it be Owen or Luke or both, but that's because he knows them from college and you know he's been friends with them for a long time. But yeah. Angelica Houston in this film, Willem Dafoe. Yep, and he, that's not normal, but but he does have like, a, a a group of people that constantly come back to you know to his films. Yeah. I mean, even in Jeff Goldblum, yeah, is kind of not not always having a large role, but but often showing just showing up for you know. Like yeah, a little support role, yeah. but at the same time, it's you could think like he's Jeff Goldblum. He mm. doesn't have to fucking do it, you know. But yeah, he, but he does. He does, and he shines. And in this, he actually gets to show off his uh, shirtless physique. Physique, yeah. Mm-hmm. His his abs and his pecs, and he does look good. <laughs> Gotta say, in a Jeff very, Gold, in the Jeff da- Goldblum month, I have to talk about how he does look very fit. He's very dapper. He is, he is. I remember seeing those vi- those photos of him on the beach, and I was like, Je- I never knew Jeff Goldblum was so ripped. Like, but I mean, he is. And even in the fly, I mean, he was beefy. Well, that's a young Goldblum with a nice yeah. Jerry, but I mean, Jerry Curl mullet. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. I know. That's a great. Great look for him. Mm, it was a great look for anybody there in 1985, 86. And, yeah, even into the 90s, like, Jerry Seinfeld. Uh, he, he doesn't have a Jerry curl, but still, he's got he, the mullet He's look. got a, a mullet. Had, I mean, he, and my, even my dad was sporting that oh, sort of mullet style. Oh, he had more of the, uh, what's his name? Alan Jackson. Jackson. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's probably his idol, but <laughs> at that time, it was his idol. Or, you know, Jimmy... Bu- well, not really... I mean, he loves Jimmy Buffett, but I don't <laughs> think he, he idolizes him in the same way that... You know, he's not a, a five o'clock somewhere type of person, you know, or a Margaritaville type of person, but... Every time I think of Jimmy Buffett, all I can think of is South Park in the episode when Kurtman and Kyle get AIDS, and they have... Instead of getting Elton John to perform at their AIDS benefit concert, they got Jimmy Buffett and Cartman's just pissed off, and he comes on stage he's like cheeseburger in paradise. You're like, oh god, somebody shut Jimmy Buffett up. <laughs> Haven't seen that. It's hilarious. I'm not really caught up on myself. You Park. should watch. That's a hilarious South Park episode. The cure to it. the cure to AIDS is inject all your money into you. <laughs> you got a lot of money. Put money into your bloodstream, and it ends with a great kicker because when they figure that's out, Magic Johnson. Uh, cures his AIDS. Uh, they go to like some guy in a Range Rover pulls up into like an African like uh, tribal area and goes, "Hey, they just found a cure to AIDS. Put all your money into your bloodstream, and it'll go away." Woo! He pulls away, and you see they all have like tents and it's desolate and poverty stricken. <laughs> it's funny, it's hilarious. Yeah, it's hilarious and a nice ironic, you know. Oh yeah. You need to catch up on South Park. I do, I do. But anyway, we're gonna take a, a short break here. To cut away from Life Aquatic for a second and, and talk about what uh, what we're imbibing in today. Ooh. So, the indulgence factor. Put into two groups. I'll take Ned, Ogata, and Willow Darby. Thanks. Thanks a lot for not taking me. So, um, we're drinking something a little bit different today. Um, normally, we have like our Saranacs or our Sam Adams, but... Uh, or Jenny's. Or Jenny's. But this weekend... Um, our store, Hannaford, which I normally go to for beer, uh, had the Founders All Day IPA on sale. And not only was it on sale, it also comes with 15 beers. So you do the math. You're getting three extra beers for two more dollars. It's it's a good deal. So 
So I did it. I uh, I pulled the trigger and I did it. Well, so it's the, uh, craft beer. Like, we're not going to do 18 packs. We'll do a 15. Yeah, they did a 15 pack. You get three extra beers. So I, I bought it. And it's really good. I've been drinking it all weekend. I drank it for the 4th of July weekend. And I probably went through 11 or 12 of them by myself. And they're very, very good. Very easy to drink. Uh, if, you, if you don't know, it is a session IPA. So um, it's low on alcohol. It's like 4.7%, I think. 42 IBUs, so it's not super bitter. Um, and it really is a good quality IPA with not, you know, it, it has a lot of flavor to it, but not overwhelming uh, with to the point where, like, you couldn't drink another one. Yeah, no, it's very sessionable. It's, uh... Um, I think it's very refreshing. No, it is, too, especially with the weather we've been having. Like, oh, yeah. The, you know, it's not blazing hot, but it's getting, you know, on the yeah. hot and humid side. It's definitely... Uh, it's a very refreshing brew, I think. You don't, uh, definitely don't feel the 47 IBUs, and it's, you know... No. 40, yeah, 42 IBUs, 42 I think it is. Bad. Yeah, no, you don't. It's really... Even Sarah said that she... she I mean, she didn't like it, but she, she could... Stomach it. Yeah, no, it's definitely good. Yeah. Um, founder, I haven't had a Founders beer that I haven't liked. Uh, no. I th- you know, I think they do a very good job in all their beers. It's just kind of a shame we don't really... You don't get them a lot we, around here. We don't, you don't see a lot of them. I mean, besides, like, that, that's the big one. I do see the 15-pack around a yeah, lot. Yeah, it's been like, out lately. And you definitely, you know, you see the Breakfast Stout yeah. and the Dirty Bastard Scotch Ale. Um, there's not a lot yeah, you see around here, and when you do, it's kind of like... Because I remember, the, I think the first Founders beer that I ever had was back when we went to a uh, bar out in Albany, and they had their ESB, Yeah, which was very good, and mm-hmm. I haven't ever found their ESB since, and that was... A few years ago, three years ago? Yeah. Three but, years ago, I think it was. Yeah, and it's, yeah. you know... Yeah. It was that good. sucks, because that, that, re- that was very good. Yeah, it was very good when we were there. Um, but yeah, if, uh, we, we said it before, because I think we talked about founders before on the podcast it's yeah. definitely anything i haven't had a beer from them that isn't good or up to par on st- whatever style that you're drinking from them yep um, i definitely say check them out um i definitely love their their oatmeal you know their breakfast out mm-hmm. um that's a good one not fit for the weather today no. uh, you know late but no you know, it's it's definitely very good and when fall rolls around it's definitely something i'll be going back to and Drinking a bit of because it's just so damn good. Um, we also tried the Narragansett um, Dell's Shandy. Right? Very good. It's one of the best shandies I've ever had in my life, actually. And uh, Narragansett normally makes a, a cheaper style. Yeah, beer. It's it's yeah, it's supposed to be like uh, on par with like a Jenny or a Pabst or one one of yeah. those. Um, which I've actually had Narragansett regular lager before. I know you haven't. Yep. Um, I had it about it was pro- yeah two years ago on my birthday. Mm-hmm. Um, I get, they, uh, one of our local beer stores actually had like a couple cases of it and like because around here if they if you ever do find it which is rare they had it in the tall boy you know sixteen ounce pint six packs and cans and I got it, and it was very good. It's like it is like a Jenny. It is like a patch, but a little bit you know, like I compare it to like a Schlitz. Mm. Like it's like one like it's like a Jenny or it's like a pass, but it does have like a bit more sweetness or cleaner taste to it that makes it feel more refreshing and full like you know, more bodied yeah. than like a traditional Jenny or PBR. Um 
So it's very good, and that's why I kind of get sad that I don't ever really see it around here at all, because it's definitely something I would buy regularly if it was regularly available around here. And last night when I went to the store to go get some beer, I went to Hannaford as well, mm-hmm. um, I saw that they had a six-pack of their Shandy, just where, you know where they usually keep like Keystone Light, and I was like, oh, I gotta try it, I gotta go get it and try it. Yeah. And... It was a little more expensive than I thought it'd be. It was, it was ten nineteen for a six pack, but it, it was very good. Like I said, it's one of my favorite. It's one of my favorite shandies of all time. I think it tastes better than Lion Kugel's regular lemon shandy. I think it tastes better than like Sam Adams' uh, Porch Rocker shandy. Uh, better than Traveler's just regular shandy. Um, it's very good. It's very. It is very sweet. It mm-hmm. is, like you can when you crack that can open, you can definitely smell. The lemon, like the lemon, lemoniness. Yeah. You know, like it's like, like you're popping over like pine salt. It's like, oh, it's very like, very sweet. But at the same time, when you drink it, it's like you drink, especially if you have it nice and cold. So when I first got it too, they had it like, like really cold, really chilled. Mm. And so it was like you were drinking like liquid uh, Italian ice. And it was just great, refreshing. Um... I, I definitely recommend it. Yeah, it's and really I, good. And I wish, you know, like I said, that you could find Narragansett around here more often because it's definitely a beer that is, uh... You don't find that often around here that is, you know, that is supposed to be, is like a common common man beer, but it's, uh... Shandy, you mean? Or, or Narragansett. You well, mean? in general. Oh. In general. It's, yeah. you know, it's, it's, you know, really good stuff. Yeah. It's, it was very good. Yeah, I enjoyed it quite a bit. Um, definitely check that out. Anything else that you've had recently? No. Nothing else. I can't think of anything else either, because we nothing, talked about nothing, Siri nothing, Battle I, last I, time. Every time I go, like, to the store and I look at stuff, I, nothing really speaks nothing to me. Nothing pops it, out. Because it's all stuff that I basically have had before, and it's yeah. just like, mm. yeah. No, and I, I can't think of anything else new that I've had. Uh, just the, just the all-day IPA and that Narragansett Shandy, so. Um, but yeah, definitely check out both of those. They're really good. And... Is there any a time any time when we ever say like don't really check it out? Um, yeah, I think we've had a few that. Yeah, we've... maybe it was like the Guinness. Yeah, it was definitely the Guinness Nitro IPA. Yeah, we said we said no, not really worth it. But I went. Hey, you're being generous with <laughs> saying it's not really worth it. Not really worth it. It's an, that was a hardcore thumbs down. But yeah, all day IPA, Narragansett Shandy, two new things for us, and definitely. Uh, ones to try, so very nice. Yeah. So I'm wearing my Life Aquatic uh, T-shirt, and you're not. I thought we had agreed to both wear the T-shirts <laughs> for this podcast episode. And I totally forgot. Yeah, I I even changed out of my old my stuff from work. I was like, oh, you know, I definitely have to remember to put on my. Well, wouldn't you want to change out of work? Do you do you like coming home to work and just sitting around in your work clothes, or do you like to like? No, as yeah. soon as you get home, break into something comfy. Well, cause... normally I break into like shorts because I don't wear shorts to work. But yeah, I mean, but I I made it a mental note to put on this Life Aquatic shirt, and we both have the Life Aquatic shirt. Um, I had it different first. colors. You have a blue one. I had mine first. I have like a tealish one, like a greenish, <laughs> sea green, sea green, foamy, sea foam color. 
Um, and they're both really faded because we bought them seven years ago, something seven, like that. Yeah, seven, eight years ago, yeah. Um, but yeah, it's it's always been a fun thing. I was at college one time and I was wearing my shirt, and you always get those people that are like, Hey, nice shirt. I did have one person. Nice I remember in like college when I was walking in class, yeah. I was wearing my uh, Steve Zizou shirt. So I was like, nice shirt, man. Hey, nice shirt. Like, Thanks. You, you, I didn't get, you I like didn't, I didn't get as many uh, like compliments as I did. When I like uh, was wearing my Rocco's Modern Life shirt, and a bunch of people were like, oh man, nice shirt. Got a Rocco's, awesome. Yeah, far out. I mean, I remember. Yeah, in college there was a guy who was like, oh, you like Wes Anderson? I was like, yeah, yeah, I do. He's like, yeah, I really love all the art styles he does in each of his movies, and he got into like. A ten minute conversation about it. Of, you were probably lost. No, I wasn't lost, but, <laughs> but I was like, you know, I'm ready to leave now. I don't know this guy <laughs> at all. I don't know this guy at all. I don't, you know, if I'm going to talk about it, I'm going to talk about it on the podcast. Well, it could, could have been your Bumble friend. That was pre podcast. Could have been your Bumble friend. Yeah, could have been. But uh, anyway, yeah. So we've been fans of the Life Aquatic for years now. Um, I first saw it from you at your house. Uh, we watched it a long time ago, and and I think that uh, our favorite moment happens right at the beginning of the film. <laughs> it's a great moment when Esteban was eaten. Was he bitten? No, he was eaten. <laughs> <laughs> no, I love that. I love that moment. You know, from the first time we saw it, it's just so hilarious. It's, it's, it's so over dramatically. It's it's literally and. One of the best moments, like, as, like, a viewer, not, like, for me, like, to experience it, but to watch him experience it for the first time, is just sitting there watching it, and watching what was going on, because you have, to describe the scene, uh, Team Zizu is at a premiere for their latest documentary, yeah. and on the screen, Bill Murray's in the documentary, is in the water, he's got crazy eye, and... He's describing what happened, because there's blood pooling into the water, and Willem Dafoe's character, Klaus, is like, what's going on? And Bill Murray is explaining to him what happens, and what he is saying is being spelled out on the screen, subtitled. And he, after he's like describing what the shark that he just ran into was, he's like, Esteban was eaten! And then Klaus is like, he was bitten? And he's like, eaten! He was swallowed whole? <laughs> Esteban! And just your reaction the first time you saw it, you were dying laughing. Like, you yeah. thought it was, like, the funniest thing in the world. And that, to me, like, makes the moment even fun. Like, re- looking back just makes it even fun- even more fun for me. Because it's just, you're re- watching your reaction, seeing it for the first time. As I'm sharing this movie, sharing this moment with you. That's right. And just watching you, like, erupt with laughter at, like, the whole thing. And, and... That that's the thing, like that, like this movie is filled with moments like that. Because if you're listening to us talk, you're probably like, that's not funny, right? It's not funny at yeah. all. But if you watch it and the way it's how it's done and how dry it is and how serious it's supposed, it's like taking itself, but at the same time, you're not supposed to take it seriously. Yeah, it's it just culminates. In this... It's a it's like a, a really just dark moment there. That's yeah. that's super funny because it's not really. It's not really supposed to be. It's not supposed to be taken... I mean, in the moment itself within the film, like, that's not a funny moment, but it's played up to be as part of Wes Anderson's oeuvre. I mean, that's what yeah. he does, you know? He takes, like, a, a serious... What should be, like, a serious or, or an awkward moment, and he really plays it up to its most comedic level. Like, uh, the gypsy tags you see... In, yeah. And, like, World 10 bombs. Exactly. Thing. But, I mean... But, in this movie... Like, it's not just... It's all his films that have yeah. that you know that touch, and it, that's what makes it you know hilarious. And 
and you might not always laugh, and that's the thing about these films too. Like there are things in this film that I will find funny, but even the first time watching, it, I wasn't like laughing out loud for right. it. Cause it's it's more like you like laughing to yourself, like man, that's you know, yeah, that's funny. But that doesn't that doesn't kill you know for me kill it. Like it wouldn't kill the appeal to it. It's no, you know, you're not watching some. For the most part, you're not watching something that you're going to be like rolling around in your chair, laughing your ass off. It's, you're going to be more very subdued and consciously processing. Like oh, that's funny. Yeah. You know. Yeah, yeah. It's more of a visceral style of of humor than than something that's really just like meant to be outlandishly funny. Yeah. It it's more subdued. It's more minimal and. And I think that's what often makes it so funny is that, you know, the minimalism of it is really meant to, you know, play up the awkwardness of it. But at the same time, it is so, at the same time though, when you say, like, it's not outlandishly funny, the things that they do are outlandish. Yeah, yeah. That you should, you know, that you should find to be, like, totally outlandish, but you're not laughing at it for being, like, outlandish and having that, you know, that uproarious type laughter. Like, it's just more like... Uh, yeah, you know, like, so when you have, like, the interview between, uh, Bill Murray and, uh, Kate Blanche's character, the reporter, that's on the ship, Jane, in the background of that whole scene, when they're doing, like, this very serious interview, you have a, an orca whale in the background. <laughs> doing flips. Just and... doing flips and swimming around and being nonsensical, and if you're, like, if you're not, pay- like, looking in the, for- you know, in the background, you're not gonna li- see that, you're not gonna be, <laughs> you know, yeah. it's... You have this serious moment, but at the same time, you have this damn whale in the background, like distractingly doing yeah. flips. Yeah, it's uh, it's just being its cute little whale self. Yeah, that's all. But um, I think we should um, begin with how both simple and complex this this plot really is, because at at the forefront of the plot, your main theme is about a father and son. It's about a father and son coming together. Or what is proposed to be a father and son. Mm-hmm. Um, to find both of themselves while they're at sea with each other. To figure out who they are mm-hmm. as people. And that's a really simplistic element. It's a, it's very nearly an archetype of what you would see in, in many films. Of, of um, people that have been um, displaced coming together to figure themselves out together. But uh, I, we could say the same thing, though, with, like, most of his films. Right? Exactly, They're yeah. Not, they are archetypical story arcs. Yeah. But, but at the same time... time about family. But at the same time, if you do some, like, a story that's been done a thousand times, if you add your spin and quirkiness to it and all that, like Wes Anderson does... You know, you can get you can get by doing something that's unoriginal if you make it original. Exactly, and that's what he does in this film. That's what he does, like the Royal Tenenbaums, where it's like, oh, it's an estranged father and trying to get back to his, you know, with his family or with uh, Rushmore. It's a battle between two people with the same love interest, or you, you could, you know, yeah. But it's it's his what he does with that stereo, you know, that archetypical narrative. That and then he turns it into something interesting, something different, something unique. You absolutely get that from the life aquatic because you know uh, for the longest time there is kind of that question of like what is this plot doing? Like, where is it going? What is what is the 
the overarching theme behind this because for most of it, it really is, you know, almost like a Captain Ahab sort of thing where uh, Steve Zissou is, is setting out for revenge on this, this what he calls um, a jaguar shark that he, he is, you know, trying to get revenge on because of because of Esteban, his friend, was eaten. Yeah, that, that's that's, uh, that's supposed to be your your main plot, right? Like he's like going, that's like that's the overarching theme but the, the plot and, of and it. the subtext is supposed to be you know him and his relationship to Ned, but at the same time, the I think fi- you mean Kingsley. Okay, yeah. Kingsley's <laughs> easy. Kingsley, but but at the same time, um, the story is put forth in such a way. It's also a lot of vignettes. Yeah, it's very the, the way it's edited and the way the story's placed together. It's not very like the scenes kind of transition fluidly. No, no, it's like not often. Here's one scene, and then like, okay, we're going to this next scene. Or like, okay, this happened. I'm having a serious conversation, and then like, now I'd like to tell you about my boat. Yeah, and it's done like so. It's like the story's kind of cut up into very like little narrative vignettes. So you'll have like one vignette where it's you have a serious moment between. Ned and Steve, t- you know, talking about their relationship and how it's going. Then you have like a little vignette. Like, okay, we're gonna raid this sea lab. Okay, and, you know, and the antics then ensue. Then you have another vignette. Like, okay, now we're back in the boat, and mm-hmm. we're gonna have a character development between Ned and Jane. And you know, it's and that's definitely Wes Anderson's style for a lot of his films. And I can see where people might not like that. There's not a traditional movement forward in the plot that you might see in like a regular movie you know a a generic movie um and i think that's what makes especially the life aquatic so interesting because of all of the things that are going on within that within the film besides its main themes um uh, or the archetypes that it has going on like there's a lot to it um that means something to that to that archetype but also is really just a lot of fun as well. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you definitely see in this this film was uh, co-written from Wes Anderson and Noah Baumbach. Uh, Noah Baumbach uh, has worked on uh, some of Wes Anderson's films, um, and along with his own films, like um, he did uh, *The Squid and the Whale*, which is one of probably one of his most well-known films for himself as a director. Um, and he also did *Greenberg* as well. Um, but both of those, you know, he hasn't had the same success that Wes Anderson has had, but definitely has had, um, has shared success with Wes Anderson on some of his other films like The Life Aquatic. Mm -hmm. And you can certainly see, um, with this film and The Squid and the Whale where Noah Baumbach's, um, writing comes into play with that because there's certain uh you know Wes Anderson does have that dry sense of humor but I think a lot of Noah Baumbach's is coming out to play here as well uh the squid and the whale is very dry as well um certainly not you know hindered by Jeff Daniels in that film uh, yeah great performance right and 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 you see a similar thing in the life aquatic whereas you know Royal Tenenbaums is dry too and does have those melodramatic moments but I think they're amplified here by Noah Baumbach and I think that is one of the reasons why I enjoy this film so much. Um, like you asked me before, where does it sit in like Wes Anderson's canon? And I would say that it's it's high up there. You know, it's it's very high, and I think that's because of the combination of their writing styles coming together to kind of amplify all of it. Mm-hmm. I, I really do feel like that dryness, um, the melodramatic 
portions of the of the film uh, really are probably its best moments. Um, you see a lot of those melodramatic moments in, in times where the characters come out with very awkward things to say at like inopportune times. Um, there's a scene the, where the, the, yeah, the, the speech of the characters is very uh, direct. Direct. It's articulate, but it's bombastic at the same time. Right. So when you have Steve after talking to his wife and his crewmates about what he's going to do after the premiere of his documentary about how he's going to handle Esteban's death and saying, I'm going to get drunk and fucking kill this shark. He's like, I'm going to go out overnight drunk and when I wake in the morning, I will hunt this, you know, yeah, this supposed shark. Yeah. It's, you know, and the humor can be found. It's well-spoken. It's well-spoken, yeah. but, you know... I think it's like a, it's for me that's like subtle humor. Like to me, that's like yeah. you know, it's like, it's a satire of a character who generally would be you would think of as being more outspokenly violent. And you know, th- this is a person who has experienced a real trauma that some people don't believe that it even happened, mm-hmm. and he's kind of dealing with that in his own way. But he's also a very. Uh, conceited person himself pompous very pompous. Yeah, yeah pompous and so he's got both of those sensibilities within him and and now though they both come out in this kind and, of and articulate it, way and it helps that he's played by bill murray yeah who can nail like a self-righteous that, pompous the pompous like sarcastic sarcasm. asshole you know to a, you know to a t that i mean one of my favorite uh parts of the Life Aquatic, and this extends into both the Royal Tenenbaums and the Squid and the Whale as well, um, is like like I said, those really awkward moments where the characters are being super blunt about certain things. Certain things that often come off as melodramatic. Mm-hmm. We, we talk about the Royal Tenenbaums where, again, Bill Murray delivers, well, I just want to die. And which is which is great because to give context to the scene, and we, and we will review this film right, down yeah. the line. But to give context to the, that scene, because that is also one of my favorite scenes in the movie, is you have Gwyneth Paltrow's character, who he's she's married to Bill Murray, trying to explain to him why she's leaving him, and why she needs to get away and like to be with her family, and she's very seriously explaining to him like I just need to get away from you. And I just need to be on my, you know, my family to collect myself. And mm. He's asking her like when she'll be back, and you have this very like lovely like harpsichord playing in the background too to like build like the scene. And and she and when he asks her, you know, when are you going to be back? She's like, I. She's like, I don't know. I I just need to you know find myself. Yeah. And then Bill Murray responds like, Well, I just want to die. Yep. It's not supposed to be hilarious. It's not. But it's fucking hilarious. It it's is. like it's just the whole tone, the whole setting it up, the whole It's it's the bluntness of the I know, reaction. Yeah. Like the bluntness of the reaction, but the blunt like she's very blunt in like how she's like, I just need to get away from you. Yeah. She's not like you know, and like I just need to get away and the whole thing like each character is being very blunt with themselves with each other, I mean. And just his reaction is like so blunt, so over the top. Instead of being like, oh, "Okay, you do that," he's like, "Well, I, I just want to die then." Yeah, you know. The I think that that melodramaticness carries over into the life aquatic. You 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 have certain scenes where you know, like I was talking about before with you, um, Steve said he's talking about his mentor. He's like, "Oh, this is a picture of my mentor. Uh, he's dead now." Yeah, you know, this is, this is, this is my mentor, my mentor, Lord Mandrake. 
He's dead. He's dead. He's dead now. <laughs> Just like that sort of awkward delivery of things that normally wouldn't be just you know, spoken of with such you know no no real emotional delivery to it just kind of thrown out there yeah and when he like meets the the guy from the bang he's like oh you're a bond stooge and the guy's like hey i'm a human being too he's yeah like, he's like well i'm sorry <laughs> yeah. I, he's like let's, let's put our hands in them <laughs> i think that's part of you know the life aquatic its entire arc as well is that as the film moves on it it doesn't lose the sarcasm and the melodrama but it also builds a more emotional base to it um where when we we finally end the film it's really on a sober note it's, uh, it's on an uncharacteristically sober note yeah it's it's not somber too it, yeah sober it, and somber it, it, it's not uplifting it's not no. it's not a happy ending where at least with like um to make the comparison uh with like the Royal Ten Bombs even though at the end uh you know Gene Hackman's character he dies mm-hmm. it ends on an uplifting note it's yeah. it, it is it, it brings itself up there's humor at the end where you read his gravestone and like you can you know get the humor this one's very quite yeah. the opposite because at the end you know you see Steve who has now achieved his goal he's he found the jaguar shark um, he made a, a brilliant documentary that people enjoy. He won an award for it, and yet he lost what he at first didn't even realize that he was he was missing to begin with, which was Ned. Whether he was actually his son or not, you know that mm-hmm. that emotional connection is built, which is sort of meta commentated um, within the film itself, because this is a film about making films. It's a film about making, you know, a document, a yeah. documentary in the style of Jacques Cousteau. Um, but if the, so, when we get that, you know, there's even a scene where they're talking about Ned and and uh, Steve together and shooting him on film and how they're getting this emotional connection. Which, you know, if he's really they're really son and father, they should have that connection without <laughs> needing like a, and only that, a and camera and, to, and not to only bridge that, that. And not only that, uh, Steve's always like. Asking like, is this on? Is this on camera? Or, like, you know, making sure like, is this on camera? Right. Are we, are yeah. we getting this? Yeah. So like, he's always looking for the fakeness of the reality. But not only that, but he's, he's looking out. He's looking for himself because he's thinking. Yeah. That like, oh, this. I gotta like, make this look. Yeah. Make me look good. Yeah. Um. And so like at the end when we get that that final somber reveal that you know he's not inside watching the documentary or even looking to see how other people are thinking of him in this moment, he, you, the film itself has made that emotional connection between Ned and Steve that hasn't, was that seems at first to be kind of ridiculous. You know, there is no real connection between them, even though they say they're father and son. So I think that's really good. There's, a, there's that meta commentary there um, that, you know, Wes Anderson generally always has when he's, you know, writing and directing these films. Um, and it's a really good i really like the ending of this film a lot despite the fact that it is very uh you know kind of de- depressing I, I i wish more films would do like take that kind of risk would take you know to end on yeah. a more som- uh, uh, on a more somber note yeah so cuz it, it it make it makes you think more it makes you kind of have to take the film in more i mean 
if every film like if this film just wrapped up happy like oh you know Ned doesn't die at the end yeah and you have you have them in like oh he gets the celebration of uh, you know the film that he made and yeah there, there's no you know would that be as satisfying as a viewer no, no. I mean I think because at the end of this film you don't do you feel like Steve's redeemed himself as a character as like somebody who's as like a selfish asshole. Not really. Has he redeemed himself? Um, maybe a little bit. I think you could say like a little bit, yeah. but I wouldn't say like. I mean, he's. But I. Th- it took the ultimate cost twice for him, like <laughs> yeah. to kind of. Yeah, figure out that what he's doing was, you know, and it even took a mutiny basically from his cast because. And not not only that, when the, that happens, he, he's what he's concerned about is. That the reporter didn't get get that going on, and he's like, "Oh, that's like the most serious shit that's ever happened on this shit." Yeah, where he draws a line, and, yeah, and people cross it to people cross it to mutiny, basically. Yeah, you know, the opposite of what he that's that's a funny scene in itself that he draws a line and asks people and confuses people by asking them to cross the line <laughs> if they do want to get off the boat, rather than normally you say, Which, like, come come to me if yeah. you want to be with yeah. me. Confuses Klaus. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, that's a great scene, but yes, it's all about the image. And so I do think at the end he does redeem himself when when we do see the the empty chair within the, you know, the theater as he's... I mean, I, I, mean, I, I agree he, I mean, he's redeemed, but at the same time, like, it's... Yeah, it's not, it's not a happy yeah. ending. You're not, like, you're not thinking... Uh, it's not in the same vein as with, when someone, you know, if, if Ned had survived and he had just found himself and he was like, oh, okay, I'm going to be a great dad for Ned, you know, I, and we're going to do you know, things not together be, or not be as selfish yeah. or, it wouldn't know. be the same. I mean, there is a cost to this film, uh, you know, to the end of the film, there's a cost to, to his eventual, um, realization that he can't continue to be the same Steve that he used to be. You know, and and I think that's I really enjoy probably you know I I like the film itself, but probably that those last twenty minutes I think despite how funny the other portions of it are, I think those last twenty minutes are some of my favorites within this film because of the even after I would say not even with the theater, but even before that when they're uh, finding the jaguar shark and everybody's kind of rallied around Steve and he realizes mm. that. Um, I think those are great moments. It's a great moments within the film, and I really enjoy that um, even more than like the comedy aspect of it because that's a that's a moment that comes from both Wes Anderson and Noah Baumbach. I think because there's there's a similar kind of resolution within the Squid and the Whale as well, which we will be doing. No, another point, well. another very down note. Yeah, and, uh, yeah. It's, it's another um, you know de- kind of depressing film to to cover, but but one that's well worth it, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, so I really like that about it. Um, what do you think about the the animation parts of? I think it's like, well. Uh, I think the stop motion is done very well. I think uh, adds definitely a certain flavor and character to the film. Yeah, definitely I, a character to it. Yeah. Um, you know, obviously the jaguar shark and. Some of the other things you see that are, you know, stop motion anime like that, like the crayon, pony fish, it's all, those aren't real animals, Animals, but it adds like a certain, you know, 
style. Yeah, it's definitely and, a uh, stylistic decision. It's not like mm-hmm. when we talked about you know Batman versus Superman, where CGI just reigned supreme in terrible you know fashion. You know that was a mm-hmm. not a stylistic decision. That was just something that was like it, we need we need somebody in this film. It, we need some CGI in here. I think, and I think too, it also adds because when you get like the nice underwater scenes where they're like diving underwater and you see like how everything is so bright and colorful and how the reefs look and all the animals around them how they did all that the way they did it like with the stop motion it looks brilliant it looks really good it adds a certain character flair and brightness to the film that is as we talked about a dark film Mm -hmm. so I, I think it's a nice contrast between showing the you know the bright and the lifeness life that you can get out of the sea, but at the same time, kind of the death that is inside of like the characters themselves. How yeah. kind of Steve himself is a very you know shallow person. Mm-hmm. Um, I think with the the animation style, um, I really enjoyed it as well. I, I you know at at sometimes when you get that like stylistic decision. You know, it definitely seems out of place, but here with the within this Wes Anderson film, it doesn't. And you know, I really, I liked it a lot. Um, you know, I I just thought it it's something that really stands out within the Life Aquatic. I mean, you think about it, and you do think about the animation that they chose for this film. So it's a very very interesting choice for it, and and I certainly enjoyed that as well. Um, we haven't talked about uh, the David Bowie songs, sung in Portuguese. They're great. You're um, you're more of the Bowie aficionado than I am. Uh, you know. Well, you should be a Bowie aficionado. Why aren't you? Mm, never really done anything for me. Mm-hmm. Well, for the <laughs> sad life. Um, I like it. West, you know, uh, West Anderson has always kind of. Uh, Wiz films had a certain theme within like a 60s and 70s rock paradigm. Um, and that's your thing. It, that's my thing. Um, and I, I think the Bowie songs fit well. It's kind of like with uh, the Darjeeling Limited. You had the Indian music soundtrack, but at the same time you had all the licensed music that was used in it was uh, the Kinks, and it was from their Lola versus the Power Man and the uh, money go round part one, mm-hmm. you know, fit it, you know, fits it well. And I think it, the Bowie songs fit here well too. Um, they do a few times use uh, actual uh, the actual David Bowie song, the actual Bowie songs. Cover. They um, they had a Stooges song in there, uh, but that for the most part, the soundtrack is either uh, Mark Mothers Baugh, who's yep. back from the Royal Ten Bombs. Or it's uh, say you George doing uh, covers acoustic covers of Bowie songs in Portuguese, and I I do think it fits the film well. I think it's uh, it's a, a night when he those songs are inserted. They're nice, mellow. They fit like the kind of calmness of like the, of the sea and how the scene is playing out. And then when it needs to be, you know, the soundtrack needs to lift the scene up a bit into where it's not calm and there's more of a raucous going on, they they shift away from that and go to um, something more fitting. Mm-hmm. So when you have them dive... Oops, sorry. When you have them diving underwater, 
you have uh, you know nice little electronica score from you know Mark Mothersbaugh, which yeah. At the same time, you kind of think like, oh, you know that like electronica wouldn't kind of really fit, but it fits perfectly. Yeah, it's great, and it is it is great, and I think the the dichotomy between uh, what was scored for the film and then like the cover, I, I I think it all fits well. I think it's well put together, well pieced. It wasn't. You know, I think they they put thought into and like, okay, we're gonna use like this song and 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 it's not. And I think for the most part, when you have the Say You George songs playing, they're mainly faintly in the background when you have a convers like a serious conversation going on between you know the characters, whether it be between Ned and Steve or between Ned and Jane or you know Steve and Klaus. It's it's you know it's not the forefront of what's happening. It's you know it's muted yeah. in the background, but it, gives an ambiance to the scene itself, whereas when you have the actual score put in place, it's, you know, it's more uplifted and to, like, fit the scene and kind of drive it a bit more. Yeah. I agree. I, I mean, I like the I like the music within this film. Um, I, I do think that the the Portuguese acoustic versions do fit within each of the, each of the um, scenes that they're used in. Uh, that one of my favorites is when he's playing and the the pirates are bored. That is great. Yeah, no, that's great. You no, know, because he's counting down to the you know within the song. Because he's playing. Yeah, he, yeah you know, he's playing he's space playing, oddity. Yeah. Sp- space oddity, and he's at the part where uh, in the song Space Oddity, where Bowie's counting down to like the launch. He's like five, four, and in the back because he's supposed to be on watch duty, but instead of watching for like you know things out there, he's playing his guitar singing. Because by the way. We didn't mention it. Say so you, George, who's doing those songs, is also a crew member. Right. So the reason why you faintly hear his songs throughout most of the film is because he's a crew member on the ship who's just sitting there playing his guitar. Yeah. So when you have him sitting there playing Space Eye, you see in the background with the fog a, a pirate ship come, <laughs> you know, uh, coming in, and he's you know because he's too busy playing his guitar, he doesn't realize oh we're about to be bored by pirates. Yeah. That's a great. That's and, a great and scene. It's, and that's like again, we're like it's subtle humor. It's where they're you know they're about to be bored by pirates, but if you're pay, like if you're paying attention to the background and not the foreground of the shot, it's like oh yeah, that's yeah, they're coming. <laughs> yeah, and he's counting down to them coming. Yeah, I so the music I think fits pretty well for this film. Um, how about uh, how about the the. Uh, Topless woman that Anne Marie that's that's constantly within the first part of the film. That one I I like I honestly think that's just a quirk character like a character. Quirk I think it's just quirk. I don't know the... like exactly what that is. Uh, I I, th- I I think no. But I I, I, totally, I agree because uh, that that actually goes away like later on in the film. I mean at times you can see her just like sunbathing topless or something like that. But but then later on when she's actually like boarded the ship and part of the crew, there's no. You know, there's no scenes of that, so it's just like a kind of a funny thing that was thrown in there. And yeah, no, I think it's just a character, just like a character quirk, quirk thing, yeah. Like for like laughs, like yeah. she's just running around her tits out. Like <laughs> <laughs> Do you have anything else you want to add before we get into uh, the Goldblumian factor? I, I well, before we talk about Goldblum as a supporting character, I, like I said, I think everyone plays their roles well. I think uh, Bill Murray's perfect. Yeah. Uh, this is, uh, this is, um, uh, not this movie in general, but 
it's during the Renaissance, if you would, of Bill Murray's kind of career. Right. Um, I mean, he had Rushmore, was also a Wes Anderson film, but like around the same time, he made Lo- he was in Lost in Translation. You know, so it's like his Renaissance is starting around. You know, becoming bigger and bigger around this time. He's perfect in this. He's spot on with his humor and how he, just the way he portrays the, the smugness and the sarcasm and. That like kind of hatred he has for others, but you know he's not able to admit his own flaws. It's it's great. Um, I think Willem Dafoe is perfect. He's great. He playing Klaus. He's hilarious. Yeah. He's got the probably the best just little one liners throughout the film. Yep. And of him just like kind of showing up and say like somebody saying something, then he, him just reacting. Or him in the background, you see him really, very emotionally yeah. disturbed often, and it's just and he's like I said, he's hilarious. It's great little supporting role that he was in. Um, Angelica Houston is good, very great again. You know, she's all in Wes Anderson film. She's always very good and always very dry. Yeah, aloof. Um, aloof would be perfect. To yeah, uh, Kate Blanchett I think is pretty good. Yeah. Um, no real complaints. Owen Wilson, I think, is good. I don't think it's his best Wes Anderson role because he's very, very down home. Because he, you know, he's playing a Southern Kentucky, Kentucky boy, so guy. he's so he's very, you know, very just down home and mild mannered. You know, he's the fish out of water, right? In the story, um, but I think I think he does do a good, you know, a good job. Um, you know, Bud Court as the uh, the, the, the yeah. Bond Stooge. Yeah. He's he's only got like a few lines, but you know he's fucking hilarious too. And um, drawing a blank on the producer's name. Hmm. That was the producer for the the movies. Yeah, I don't know actually. Um, I don't know. I know it's not Max von Sydow, but I always think want to say uh, Michael. Ah, uh, there we go. Michael Gambon. Yeah, hilarious. He's you know playing like a very. Uh, as you would say, Dorian Gray type, yeah, very, uh, yeah, pretentious and, uh, yeah, like a dandy, dandy, yeah, type very, of character, yeah, yeah, playing the dandy producer of uh, Steve's films. He he's hilarious. They all, they, you know, the cast is very good. The supporting, yeah, the supporting cast is very good, and uh, I think that's where we're going to, yeah, good old Jeff, the gold blooming factor, yeah. which is. Uh, um, like we said before, he's not in it a lot. He plays Captain Hennessy, um, who is basically Steve's nemesis. And he really actually says it within the film. He's like, don't talk to him. He's, he's my, he's my enemy. He's my nemesis. <laughs> so, um, it, it's a really good, there, again, we, you talk about dichotomy and here there's a good dichotomy between Bill Murray's character and Jeff Goldblum's. They're both very similar even though they probably would not like to admit no, was, how similar I know, they are. Yeah, because they, they're both pompous. They're both full of themselves. Yeah. Both take themselves very seriously. Yeah. Um, it's a... I mean, it's a great part for, for Goldblum because it's really amplifying, like, his r- most uh, ridiculous traits, you know, to, to a, a point where he gets to, again, like Bill Murray, you know, kind of center on those, you know, like pompous traits and, and prickish attitudes that 
you know, he he's can can do so well. Um, I mean, it's unfortunate that we don't see more of Hennessy. Honestly, I really would like to see more of him. That would have been film. nice to see throughout, like him, like yeah. constantly running into him, like and, berating, like, and then like seeing Bill Murray being, oh shit, it's Hen-, you know, yeah. Because when you do see that, it's great. I mean, because you can it, just everything about Hennessy does scream like, wow, there's an asshole right over there. Well, I know because like, and the, when you first meet him, and af- it's when after uh, Bill Murray shows his documentary to the Italian. Uh, crowd, because his documentary premieres in Italy, and he shows it, and it's after the premiere, and he has there, asked all the questions, and they're taking pictures, and Hennessy is there, he's like, oh, hi, Steve, Steven, how's it going, hi, he's like, what, so what was it you said you said? Uh, he's like, it's, it's a Jaguar show, he's like, oh, yeah, I'm sure it is, buddy. Yeah, <laughs> I know. And you can just tell he's like a pompous asshole, because he always, oh, like, Steven, Steven? Yeah. And, and when everybody else calls, you know, him Steve, you can just tell the way in his tone, the way he says it. He's like, Steven. You know, S- Steven. He's always got, like, his the, like, like, I would, scarf I, wrapped around, you know. I would compare it to, if anyone's able to remember, the glory days of The Daily Show when you had Steve Colbert and Steve Carell, the two Stevens. Yeah. And you just said, like, you had, like, Steve Carell and Stephen Colbert. Like, Stephen so that's like like how I kind of like like kind of think because like people would like refer to him as Steve and it's like no Steve Stephen you're right it's Steve Stephen hi yeah Stephen so would you say you saw oh Jaguar shark yeah okay yeah okay yeah that's great I just became a knight yeah <laughs> in Portugal is that a new merit badge <laughs> yeah I mean like we said you know the the script is really amplifying those qualities of Jeff Goldblum so that is. I think he takes full advantage of it, too. He does, absolutely. And, uh, you know, just even even when he's not in it and you see just kind of the props that he supposedly owns, like the espresso machine that's on on his, uh, like, whatever, the, the shark observation tower, um, you know, that's just, again, just another reason to dislike Hennessy even more. His hair is slicked back. Yeah. He's got... The very dapper scarves. He's always well dressed and well. His glasses. Like he's very like, all white linen suits. Yeah. Like he just looks very, very well. Flowing pants. Yeah, often. looks looks just well like, kept. And where Steve's crew is all wearing just like speedos and you know Adidas and red hats. You know beanie caps. You know they look like the ragtag group where it's uh, Hennessy's group is you know the dapper men out in a sea adventure. Like oh yeah. So where does this rank on the Goldblumian factor? Um, I'd say it's a little above medium. I think, it, and that's probably hindered because he's, he's just not, not in it. He's not much. in it enough. Doesn't but, get enough time. But he, but when he is in the movie, he's great. He chews the scene. Oh yeah. Um, for instance, when after Steve uh, raids his lab to take some equipment, and he gets the little printout from the Coast Guard saying his lab's been raided, he's like, "Son of a bitch." Some at fuckers broke into my sea lab. You there? Load my elephant elephant gun with buckshot. Yeah, and he's, and, he's looking down at gigantic binoculars. And then when he gets rescued from the pirates, he's like, "They're put." Steve's about ready to leave the island because he can't find uh, can't find anybody. And then they run into the group of Filipinos that uh, the pirates that you know, sank Hennessy's ship and killed all his crew and Hennessy's playing cards with him and he's like, oh, Steven, are you here to rescue me? And Steve just looks at him and he's like, 
I fold and he gets shot, right? <laughs> right? You know, and he doesn't die from the shot. He got shot right under his heart. And when they're running away, you see him running, like holding his chest in a huge blood streak. And you're like, he should be dead. But he's like, no, I'm still going. And he's wearing a I'm a Pepper shirt. It's yeah, like, yes, yeah. For Dr. Pepper. It's just, it's just, you know, totally absurd. Yeah. But it, hilarious at the same time. It's great. And I just. And I, I like the rivalry between the two, because I, I think it would have been nice if the film kind of got more into it. Yeah. The rivalry, from all you can see, is not just because, you know, they're rivals in science, but because Angelica Houston's character also used to be Goldblum's ex-wife, but now Bill Murray's wife. And Bill's just like, I can't believe you ever slept with him. He's a, you know, in his own words, he's faggy. Yeah. And at the end of the film, you even hear Goldblum go like, I am part gay, you know. Yeah. And then Bill, and Bill's just like, well, aren't we all? <laughs> yeah, I would say uh, on the scale, I probably I would put him at a seven on the gold blue. I'd say six to seven. I mean, yeah, yeah. Part of that is hindered from him just not having as much screen time, uh, like with the Lost World, which we'll get into. I mean, just not as much time. Lost World has so much more time for for Goldblum too really amplify on the global man factor but uh definitely one of the best reasons to check out the life aquatic for for jeff goldblum alone even though he's just a a quick supporting character really well, he does get pretty high billing on it too he does yeah and then towards the end he becomes a, a more prominent character but even still it's, i mean for about a half an hour i mean even still yeah not not really, not really not really important to the to plot itself no. so Anything else you got for The Life Aquatic with Steve Zizou? It's a really great film. Yeah, it's, it's a really it's, good. It's hard for me to articulate like all the. Hey, there's a lot going on like, like within the, the film nu- itself. The nuances. Yeah. I mean, I think. I would say that I I definitely like this film more than the rest of Wes Anderson's recent output. I agree. I I think it's probably my third favorite Wes Anderson film. Um, I'd say my favorites are The Royal Ten Bombs and then Rushmore, mm-hmm. which you still haven't seen Rushmore. Um, right. Then I'd probably say this. I mean, I, I do find it better than, you know, the Moonrise Kingdom. I didn't really care. I liked, but I didn't really care for it that much. And then uh, the Darjeeling Limited, I didn't really care for it at all. Right. Um, and then the Grand Budapest Hotel. Which I liked a lot. I did like it. Um, Again, though, I, I don't think that it matches up to, like... The Royal Tenenbaums or Life Aquatic. I think. Like, I think. I think. I mean. I don't know. I. I think for me, the Royal Tenenbaums is always just going to be really hard to be because the cast is so well done, the humor yeah. is so perfect, the just. I, I can't wait to like review because I. I yeah. There's like so many little scenes in that like that I find absolutely hilarious that most people probably wouldn't find hilarious, but and not only that, like the style. The artwork, the photo- you know the photography of the film. I think Mark Mothersbaugh with that film does a fantastic job with the score. Yeah. Um, I, I, but, I mean, yeah, I, I definitely like the Life Aquatic. Probably one of my favorites of Wes Anderson. Yeah, no, I, I agree. Definitely. It's definitely something. I, I, if people were to ask me, like, if oh, I want, I want to start watching what like a Wes Anderson film, yeah. What should I, this would be one of the ones I'd probably point oh, to. Oh, yeah, yeah. Definitely. Which, I mean, I don't think a lot of Wes Anderson, like, I think, from what I can tell, I don't think a lot of, like, people like, like, they like it, but they don't think it's great. Right. Um, 
which I disagree with. I, th- I think it is one of his better films. I think the style of it is great. I think like playing like that whole Cousteau documentary style, except taking it to very absurd lengths. Is, absurd, yeah, almost is, like uh, like C Lab or something. Sometimes yeah, I get yes. like a feeling of C Lab. Oh, well, that's what I was laughing too because when uh, Hennessy calls his, you know, call, he's like my C Lab has been great. I can right, think of like, right. like C Lab, you know, twenty twenty, yeah, from Adult Swim. So I, 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 but they play, you know, the style is, you know, well done. The soundtrack's great. The acting is, you know, I think it's a unique film that you, you would never see anybody out there, you know, try today. Like, cause it's, yeah. it'd be just too, I, if I can see like pitching that now to like a, like a producer, they'd be like, I'm not funding this shit. <laughs> You mean to tell me you're going to make a film that's in the vein of a Jacques Cousteau documentary? I mean, yeah, if that was Wes Anderson's, like, first film, yeah, definitely not. Yeah, no. I mean, now he kind of has the... Clout. The pull. Oh, well, yeah, yeah no, he could do whatever To do what he wants. But at the time, when you're thinking about, like, one of his first films, yeah, that would have been tougher. Yeah. To really, to really, uh, get funding for that. Uh, so, out of, uh, ten red beanies, what would you give The Life Aquatic? Uh, nine. Nine? Yeah. yeah, that's pretty much up there with me. Um, probably a nine, I would say. It's a very, uh, very, very good film. I really enjoy it. Definitely, definitely check it out. I mean, it's really hard to believe that it's already been 12 years since it released. I know, I f- I f- it literally, for me, it feels like it was only yesterday and I was watching it at a friend's house in high school yeah. for the first time and just laughing my ass off because it's so hilarious. Yeah. Um... Just you know, makes me feel so fucking old now. We're so old. I'm 27 now. I know. Happy birthday. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> All right. So next time we're gonna do uh, probably the Lost World. Probably the Lost World. Yeah, I would say the Lost World. We're gonna do get back into the swing of things with a little more thriller. Gold, yeah, a little more gold, a little more gold bloomy, and like more of a thriller sort of style before we get into the fly. It really. Is the Lost World a thriller? It is, yes. I'm going to call it a thriller. It's yeah. a thriller. Yeah. Thrilled me when I was in theaters. <laughs> I'm going to the long grass! <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> I'm going to the long grass! But we still have three more weeks of uh, Jeff Goldblum month to, to get through, so we'll be back next week with another... Are we going to have like an interruption during that for the Ghostbusters? Maybe. It's hard to say. Well, you you're the one that wants to see. I do want to see Ghostbusters. I d- I I don't really I do want to see it. I'm interested in it. So we may have an interruption. We may have a uh we uh uh interrupt this regular scheduled mm. program to bring you the latest review of Ghostbusters. So you know it's going to get shit on. Probably. I but I'm okay with it that. It could be the greatest I I know I I'm convinced cuz it's been so de-hyped now. Yeah. I think even if it ended up being a thousand times better than the original Ghostbusters, which it can't be because they have Aykroyd, Murray, or Remus, <laughs> um, it's, you know, it's already, it's dead. It's dead yeah. on arrival. It's kind, of, it's kind of like with the new Spielberg film, the Disney film, BFG. Yeah. Uh, it's done terrible. It's bombed because probably Finding Dory has self-cannibalized all its fucking... Yeah. Which I don't get why. Why would Disney release a Pixar and a... Disney film at the same fucking time. Yeah. That makes no sense. Oh, good idea. Um, yeah, so we'll be back next time with The Lost World. And I'm going to end this with my usual spiel. Please. Go to Twitter. Yeah. 
please check us out on uh, SoundCloud, which is where we first post our episodes. Uh, you can subscribe to us on there. So search for us on SoundCloud.com, Blood and Black Run Podcast. Uh, we're on iTunes as well. That's where, you know, if you have an iTunes account, you should definitely subscribe and leave us a review and all that fun stuff so that we get spread around like we deserve. Um <laughs> So we're, we're like iTunes. herpes, the gift that keeps on giving. That's right, you should all share spread us. It. Spread it. Spread it around. Uh, since Facebook is ripping us an asshole. <laughs> um, you can go maybe, to Facebook. May, maybe Mark Zuckerberg is one yeah. of the people listening. He's like, fuck yeah, these guys. I hope so. Um, yeah, you can like us on Facebook. Uh, the uh, We're Blood and Black Run Podcast on there as well. Not guaranteeing that you'll ever see our posts that we put down there because... Just because you like us doesn't mean that you actually see anything now. Um, but we're on there, so you can like us. Um, also, we are on uh, you know all the other podcasting sites like Spreaker and... Uh, I already said SoundCloud. That's where we put ourselves up first. Yeah. This is why you don't get to do this. <laughs> this is why I do that. Uh, Stitcher? Yeah, Stitcher. Yep, we're on Stitcher. Um, so you can listen to us on those those other ones as well. And uh, you can tweet us on Twitter. Well, tweet when I say us, I mean me. Uh, it's, it's at r y n e t m i a d w, and uh, you know I will respond to you on there. You can also email us at blood and black podcast at gmail dot com. We're taking suggestions, although not this month because we got a lot to cover. So <laughs> unless you have a, a really good Goldblum film, yeah, none of your suggestions will be. Uh, accepted this week if it's better than, if or it's, this month if it's better than cats and dogs which I'm sure that's not hard to do <laughs> um, we'll accept it please because <laughs> I don't know if I can sit through cats and dogs again <laughs> I know uh, but anyway, you don't know you haven't seen it I have not seen it so I'm looking forward to it but anyway thank you for listening um, hopefully this episode has been more orally pleasing to you because I did get a new microphone so hopefully it sounds better and um, we will be back next week with another Gold Bloom hit, The Lost World. <laughs>